Verse 1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there may you be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Lord, as we bow our hearts now, as we contemplate your word, as we just ask that you push all the things that are clouding our minds away, that we can focus on you, your word, and the life that you give us. We, speak, we, we pray that you speak your truth to us now through your written word. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. More often than not, more often maybe than we might like to admit, circumstances in life will trouble us. The word trouble means showing distress, anxiety, problems. And life is often said to follow along a path, hopefully forward. So during the course of life that we're on, while we're on earth, we're faced with how to think and how to respond to things that happen. Those decisions that we make constantly impact most of the quality of life that we live, some more than others. Said another way, it's like we're sailing our ship through life under a perpetual storm warning with a percent chance of stress and problems. Occasionally, fierce storms do develop and knock our thinking so far off course, we can't tell land from the horizon. To combat our stress, naturally, the world promotes the thrill of just spin the wheel, go to the casino, pull the lever, binge your TV shows, take a pill, abuse alcohol, and more. Yet, nothing ever satisfies our minds. Good, it's not supposed to. Sorry, world. We're marketed to death to make us feel like we can escape the challenges of the journey that we're on. The world relentlessly pushes a way to self-satisfaction, but it only masks any real peace and joy. For instance, there's hardly a day that goes by without hearing things like, listen to this, set your own destiny, be whoever you want to be, even disillusions about choosing genders that are not assigned by God, or, I won't say worse, we can decide whether babies not yet physically born can live? No. Ridiculous ideas that used to be kept are now amplified, shared more frequently, talk about that later, and more freely. <laughs> the world isn't going crazy. It's been crazy for a long time. Distortions like this can so easily trouble us and cloud our minds, and worse, run tragically counter to the scriptures because they're void of any faith or spiritual justification. So whether it's a constant drip of news, socials, texting, or talking, or all of the above, if the excess gets too much, we can be troubled by all the things that we're dealing with. Yet the longer we deal and we learn about the Lord, the more we see the contrast between the way the world directs and how we should actually live. Sound familiar? At their worst, these proverbial winds of headlines and culture can affect our journey deeply. They can create an inner tempest, the likes of which the tornado in The Wizard of Oz doesn't compare. Go with me here. In the fictitious movie, in my slightly fictitious retelling of it, Dorothy and her little dog, too, were caught up in a storm spinning so violently that all she could wish for is to, what? Go home. Maybe you feel like that way sometimes, like you aren't in Kansas anymore when you look around. If you're right now daydreaming of a vision of heaven or wishing for a life 
that's satisfied by meaning, you're on the right track. This world is not our home. But as we saw in these verses, we know where home is. Maybe to you this sounds like an overstatement of your experience with the world. You may say, it's not that bad. You know, don't you hear that? You hear people say, ah, it's not that bad. We can get through. We just medicate and do whatever we do. That's, that, that, that's on them. But if that's you, consider how much the culture is impacting your life. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4, which happens to be the same people group, same geography that John writes to here. We won't be like immature children tossed and blown about by every new wind of teaching, but we will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Isn't that what marketing can turn into at times? So why then do we routinely look to the world to tell us what to believe? We already have the truth. That's something that we can live in. We can store it so deep within our hearts that that's what can be what guides us and our thoughts and our actions. There's a missionary named Leslie Newbegin who said, unless God's story controls our thinking, inevitably we will be swept into the story the world tells about itself. Then the more we look for truth in the world, we find its compass points to an ever-changing true north. Who has ever seen a compass? There's only one north. Why does it change? Why do we buy that? Why do we buy that story? So the word, the word true, though, actually means a reality or actuality. So if we're interested in reality, we have to consider what's true. We have to consider gospel truth, which is Jesus himself. We'll walk through that. He's our guide, our true north star. He provides our direction that in no matter what happens in the world that surprises us, scares us, or worse, just keeps us complacent. Jesus will never leave us in a storm. Never has. The songs have suggested today. He has a plan and a path that he wants you on. This whole topic reminded me of a, you know, when, I, when I'm in the back for so long with music and, and musicians, I uh, inevitably going to invoke a few songs. <laughs> so the whole topic reminded me of a hymn by Fanny Crosby. It's 145 years old, but you know it. It's reported she was blinded for life when she was about six weeks old, or by the time she was six weeks old. Fanny was talking to one of her neighbors one day, and his neighbors do, he began complaining about his life. If I had wealth, I'd be able to do just what I wished to do, and I'd be able to make an impact on the world. So she replied, I'd love to have been there. You can probably say it with me. Well, you can take the world, but give me Jesus. Reports say within a few hours she had written the song by the same name. Get this, the last verse of the 1879 hymn says, In his cross my trust shall be, till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see. With the condition she lived in, she was blind. She had challenges in this world. Jesus was the first face she ever did see when she was ultimately healed of her blindness in heaven. It's the same for us today, whether we're blind or not, visually. As we focus on Jesus' words with a clearer, brighter vision, we can see our Lord preparing something uniquely special in us. In John 14 bulk of our Bible is red, denoting Jesus's actual words, actual truth. Jesus selected 12 particular men called disciples to minister with him, watch him, and hear him speak. Since we're simultaneously studying God's word and words through Mark's gospel on Sundays, we've already learned that Mark focuses primarily on what Jesus did, but John, interestingly, presents what Jesus said rather than what he did. 
speaking of speech, John is especially helpful here as we see such a special emphasis on verbal communication. These verses we're looking for are a discussion. They're read. They're Jesus' words. If you look through the last couple of chapters and the next couple of chapters, it's Jesus' words. He's speaking. He's enunciating. He's, he's doing what we so, do so well in our culture. During that time, information moved in days to weeks. There wasn't a method to pass on information as fast as we do now. Information now is shared in a split second. Maybe you might say a twinkling of an eye, as you'll see in Revelation. And it's no secret. Our society excels in consuming and sharing what people say. Maybe to a fault? I don't know. Some of us are addicted to others' comments and comings and goings. Due to the high volume that we consume of these things, it leads some to form decisions on topics so quickly, just surface level. And people without full knowledge nor discernment grab onto quick ideas. But looking at Jesus speaking in these verses, he acknowledged trouble in the disciples and the way that you can process through it. It's no different for us today. Because if you know and follow Jesus today, you're his disciple too. The things that he says here, by extension, he's saying to all of us that are listening. By way of some setup, John wrote the gospel to the Ephesian people about 90 AD, which is current day Turkey. Um, in the prayer room, there was a discussion about some of the calamities that are happening. You may recall about a month ago that earthquakes sadly killed more than 50,000 people in earthquakes in Turkey. This was the same time period, same place that this gospel was written to. Just reminds me that Jesus has always cared about those people, not just when the relief trucks roll in after a tragedy. On roughly five occasions, John refers to himself as, you know this, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Due in part by spending considerable time with him, but also inferred in Mark 16 and Matthew 27, while at the cross, commentators agree they were cousins, Mary's mom and, and uh, others. So this means John was close in age, knew Jesus' mannerisms and traits. Beyond the Lord's call on his life to become a disciple, also to write these things, he was pretty qualified to write the way that he did. He lived with Jesus, not just during those three years. Finally, God inspired John to write about 40 years after the other three gospel writers, which is basically a lifetime for some of us in the room. And it's the only book of the four gospels that covers this particular exchange we read today. So let's do that. Let's look down at verse 1 again. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Again, let not your heart be troubled. This signals that it's normal. It's very normal to face fears and worries. Who doesn't? Don't raise your hands, but there probably aren't too many. We just talked about stresses, social pressures. What about standing up, just simply standing up to a friend or coworker or a client or business partner, just to do the right thing under pressure? Worrying, what will they think about me? Adults, don't raise your hands. I'll raise my hand. We still worry about what people think about us in our workplace, in our homes, and different things. That's all we think, but that and that's not all we think, but that's part of what we think. And that has an element of anxiety to it, too. But the word your is plural. Let not your hearts be troubled. So Jesus is addressing everyone in that room. Another translation says, don't be troubled, as a command, as a strict command. Said more literally from the Greek word order, don't, be, don't trouble your heart. Trust in the God who we believe. The comforting words here had a particular value in that context. And I'll argue that they'll still have a comfort in innumerable situations for us now. When you face trouble of any kind, small, medium, or large, you have a choice. In some cases, we can avoid it, right? We can see trouble coming. We can avoid an accident. We can, we can maybe steer clear of something that we see is clear present danger. Or sometimes you just need to move through it. 
You can't avoid the accident. You're in it. Now what? How are you going to respond? Jesus here addresses that emotion directly in verse 1. And although we can't ever, I can't get into your minds, you can't get into my mind, we can't get into the minds of the disciples, but why were they troubled? Not entirely sure. However, let's do a quick flyover backing up two chapters, and I think we'll find a few reasons, starting in John, 6, or John 12, 16. His disciples didn't realize at the time, but this thing that's going to happen next is a fulfillment of prophecy. This is the time when Jesus found a young donkey, rode it into Jerusalem during the Passover. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered that these scriptures had come true before their eyes. In 1223, Jesus shared a parable of the kernel of wheat that must die to produce a harvest of new lives. He's speaking about his own death, one that must be made so that a harvest can be seen in heaven. An angel speaks to the crowds for their benefit is helpful when you don't know what's going on the angel comes and says thank you <laughs> we'll take we'll take that word so an angel speaks to the crowds for their benefit then a realization that jesus is that kernel of wheat who must die in order to bring honor to the father this is only a, what a period of days hours of days weeks before the the setting is happening now he had just predicted his betrayal in 1331 now jesus was in great anguish of spirit and he exclaimed, the truth is, one of you will betray me. But they didn't know why. They didn't know how. They didn't know who it was going to be. Listen to this. The disciples looked at each other, wondering who he could mean. So now they're curious just as much as we are. John was sitting next to Jesus at the table. So Peter, what a guy, what a friend. You have a friend like this? Yo, ask him who would do this terrible thing. So in 1325, John gets the task to speak for the bunch. Uh, Lord, who is it? I don't know if I'd want to be that guy. Judas calls out Jesus, sorry, Jesus calls out Judas by the nature of saying, the one whom I give the bread dipped in the sauce. Who's got the recipe for the sauce? I want that recipe. The Last Supper. I don't know, it's in scripture, it must mean something. Judas then leaves the room to go secure his way against the Lord for four common silver coins. This is just Eisenhower, it's not anything other than that, so don't rob me. There were four styles of coin at the time. Some scholars and medical, medical, metal experts estimate them at about 94% silver. This is just a dollar. Again, you can have it if you want it. <laughs> These were valued at roughly $300 in value. Would you take a $300 bribe to turn in the son of man? By now in this narrative, I know it was rapid fire, but not even Dallas Jenkins could bring this fully to life, and he's tried through the Chosen series gets better though. Jesus again tells now the 11, it's time for him to leave. Peter oblivious, sorry Peter, in 1337 has no idea where Jesus is going and suggests that he go with him. Jesus replies, you can't go with me now, but you'll follow me later. Great, now we're on to something. But he isn't done with Peter yet, as we know. Peter determines, says, I'm ready to die for you. So Jesus goes ahead and rebukes him. You could actually say scolds him in the language and predicts that before the rooster crows in the morning, he'll have to deny Jesus three times, which he did. Don't we deny Jesus in our own lives too? I don't, I don't want to be so critical of Peter here. At this point, Jesus had invested three years with these guys, showing them by his actions and teaching them with his words that his life was preordained by God the Father, and that he is their help in difficult times. So what about you? What about us? What's troubling you? Are events, maybe in your family, friends, nearly constant upside-down financial forecast every time we turn on the news? 
There's plenty to be troubled by if we let ourselves. For some things, these get to us a little bit more than others. No wonder why we still have stress and anxiety in our lives. On our own, we have trouble processing so much, so fast, and so frequently. And sometimes, so without God, inviting God's involvement in our lives as we what? Scroll through life. Maybe it's on the TV, maybe it's on our phones, I don't know. But compounding this, there's danger in blindly following the world's vision without the maturity to apply the Lord's wisdom with the superficialness of how we, just as humans, are so apt to just consume stuff. Isn't this most important when especially we're training up the next generation of our families in our church? Some are sitting next to you now. To this point, psychology today says the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. I was said in 2008, four years after Facebook was created, two years after it was viable, in my opinion. There's other prominent Christian worldview writers writing how boys, guilty too, <laughs> but especially young girls and young teen girls are emotionally and negatively affected more by using social media. So to the youth and to the parents, I'll just say this as a father and as a friend, in light of the troubles that we have in this world, you make your decisions for yourself and your household, but I urge you to proceed with great caution when allowing social media use as we all listen. Seek the Lord's way and will and how we're going to consume excess voices. Some of the troubles we face, or that we face stem from how we don't fully have a worldview. We don't have a thought process. We don't have a filter for what's actually happening and all of this information that the world is throwing at us. That's the biggest issue with kids on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and others. I'm not going to rail on those per se, but just the information that is disseminated. If you ask a child, where did you learn that from? I learned it from this or that or something of that like Gamers, you're guilty too. I was a gamer once, I know how this works. <laughs> Be careful of those untested voices you hear through your headsets, people you've never met that are influencing you from who knows where. In reality, that's the same thing too. To the adults, and I'm guilty of this too, <laughs> from, from, for lots of different reasons, but turn off the bad news. Can't control it anyway. I've tried, still comes on the next day. News headline pops up. Can you avoid it? Maybe. Can you move through it? Yep. So here's the remedy. We must keep studying the scriptures as we live on. The challenge is, is on for us today. Are we filling our minds with just as much of the red letters in our Bibles over the metaverse on our phones and computers? Some things to consider as we look at our text again. Here the disciples are with Jesus. They're next to him. In some accounts, they're leaning on him. They're, they're physically present. You can't get much closer than that. But they're struggling. They're struggling, and they're right next to him. They can touch him. The winds and waves of life still scared them. Each guy could have had a million thoughts racing, all coming from different perspectives. We talked about that in terms of why, why are they really struggling? Because they were present, and even though they were present, these experiences with Jesus were strong because they were distracted maybe with job and life and family. But did they also have the talking heads on TV and constant messages on their screens? No, they, were, they had enough to deal with with just ordinary, everyday life. Don't we feel like that sometimes when so much hits us at once? It's hard to focus on what's important. What are the big things that if, if all else fails, have to happen, have to be of utmost importance? 
when tough, tough times dilute our attention, we can definitely relate to having problems. But don't forget, the disciples were with Jesus, but Jesus never left them. He was physically present the entire time through all of the events of John 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and on. He never left them. He's with you now. Even if you're going through a season of untold days of difficulties that don't seem to have a resolution. At least I believe now, now that we're through the trouble part, here's some relief after the day or so or weeks or so that Jesus just had through what we looked at. But I love how this verse ends with some straightforward good news. And here it is, second half of verse one. You believe in God, believe also in me. It's like a deep breath. In a rapid, after a rapid fire series of events, none of them great. If you look through, there wasn't much good news there. So how do you respond when you hear unsettling news? Do you default to silence? Just would rather be by yourself, would rather be quiet? Or do you start asking questions? Are you the one that puts up to your friend asking ridiculous things? Or are you the spokesperson for the group? Regardless of how you answer, you're in good company because the disciples represented both camps as we read in John 12 through 13. Jesus is saying here, trust me. And I'm going to emphasize, trust me, listen to me. Anyone with kids has said this. Why do we say it? Trust me. Maybe because we believe we hold an authority in their lives. I hope we do. We provided food and home and supplies and advice and all the stuff. They seem to keep growing out of clothes. They eat more. You feed them. They eat more again. And they eat more and more. And, you know. But our desire, I think, if we're all honest, is our desire, not our reality, but our desire is that they've never gone hungry or empty, even when there's been a financial struggle. And we've all had those. On days when they may come home from school broken about, somewhat, about what some meanie said in school or work or online, for parents and grandparents, guardians, are you there to hear their troubles? Jesus is saying, believe in me when you're troubled. I'm here. I'll listen. And he's our example with how we handle others that have troubles. Jesus gives the commandment, don't be troubled. Then gives a way to obey it right away. Can't say in life there's no instant gratification. Here we go. When he says, believe in me, some 70 times in the gospel, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. Seems to be his go-to way to, of describing himself. For example, Matthew 20, 28 says, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. We saw this account in Matthew 20 when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. There's a, direct connect, there's a direct connection made here in this verse too in that Jesus and God the Father are one. Using Son of Man, he's making the distinction that he, that Jesus is God, connected in union with God the Father and all the Jewish forefathers that they already knew and worshipped. They knew who God the Father was. Maybe you feel like you can't re entirely relate to the disciples. We aren't all fishermen, tax collectors, or carpenters. Although I've spoken to at least one of each of you today, I know you're in the room. Just kind of fun, too, to know that the professions there were normal, regular people. They're people that we can be. They're people that we can emulate. And just like them, we feel trouble. We know hurt. We know what it feels like to take one blow after another. Sicknesses, diseases, pandemics, who knew? Jesus spends deliberate time to show them that no matter what's happening all around them, that Jesus the Son and God the Father are united in presence 
and in no way they should be afraid of what's to come for them. One more thing, and then we'll move on. I picture Jesus now with the 11. Judas is gone. He just told Peter that he was going to have three future failures. Was Jesus angry, frustrated, exhausted, just tired? Judas had just walked out after being in the family unit for three years. It wasn't just a quick in and out. He, he had been there. He had eaten with them. He, cut, he, he handled the money. He was trusted. What that means for them at this time is that it meant that the final slide toward the cross had started, and he knew it. Disciples don't know it yet, but in a few chapters, Jesus ends up flipping the script. This is John 16, 22. And they, this is when they start to realize that their sadness will be turned to joy. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And then you will rejoice, and no one can rob you of that joy. Verse 2, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is pivoting the disciples at this point. And only like he can, he point, plainly points to heaven. Right after, don't be troubled, trust God and trust me, he tells them why. Emphasizing my father's house, he tells them the location and significance of where he's going because they keep asking, can we go with you? Are we there yet? He keeps saying, no, not yet, hold on. They have still have no idea what's happening, though. They almost ask as if it's a place nearby. Like, Jesus, where are you going? Are you going down the street? Going to Wawa? Starbucks? Can I come? Can I use your card? No? Okay. Sorry, that's where my mind went. <laughs> they feel like they don't they almost talk like they can just travel with him, just get in the proverbial vehicle and just go down the street, like, like he's ever done that in the last three years that they've been with him. But... I don't know. It's where our minds go. The downside to the disciples, though, truly, at this point, is that they've never celebrated Easter. No idea what the resurrection's like. They hear he must go away, but they've never seen the other side of that resurrection when Jesus takes his rightful place back in heaven, wait, for once, from once he came. He's been there. He knows heaven. Mansions, though, you know, you read mansions, and your mind automatically starts decorating it and choosing the paint colors and the shutters. But the word mansions actually better translates dwelling places, like may, maybe how you would refer to where you live as a home, not just a house, a condo, or the place you stay. It's the same word meaning in Ezekiel 43.7, where God says, I will live here forever among the people of Israel. It talks about a life. It talks about living. It doesn't just talk about the, the structure necessarily. So it's not so much about, sorry to, sorry to break into your thought process here, but it's not about us necessarily getting our 12,000 square foot chalet on 40 acres with a butler. Jesus isn't talking just about lodging. He's referring, or, or just referring to the property, but he signifies a sense of permanence with completeness, with ample provision. He's got everything under control. In heaven, there's nothing missing. That's why he wants them there, and he wants you there too ultimately in heaven. He's emphasizing that there's room for you and you and you and all y'all. You can all come. You don't need to get on some craft builder's three-year-old, three-year-long wait list to start building. There's no permits. There's no fees. No running back and forth to the construction office, as nice as those people are. You don't need reservations like on Airbnb because there's limited inventory and you must act now. You do need a reservation, though. You do need a reservation with your name on it. 
can't just grab one from somebody else, say, you got an extra reservation for heaven? No, it has to have your name on it so that when you die, you're welcomed home. Jesus has to have your heart as you enter heaven. As Hebrews 13 says, for this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. We're still on earth as we until we all eventually leave and then have our citizenship transferred to heaven. Showing the tension of wanting to, to do well on earth and, and, and yet wanting to just be in heaven, Paul says in Philippians 1.23, I'm torn between two desires. I long to go be with Christ, which would be far better for me. Selfishly, don't we think that too? I want to be here, but I want to be there just as much, if not more. This was the same promise of Jesus to the thief dying on the cross, just with a little bit of a different word when he said, today you'll be with me where? In paradise. That's what he said in Luke 23. Jesus speaks to a prepared place like a big, big house with lots and lots of room. Big, big table with lots and lots of food. Ryan, for you, big, big yard where we can play football. That's right. If you don't know what that is, maybe it's just the 90s calling in my ear. If you're singing Big House by band Audio Adrenaline. If you listen to it later, you're, you're welcome, <laughs> I think. The verse says he must go there. Well, he wants to go there. He might go there. No, he must go there. Heaven is not a place that he's going to for the first time. I mentioned that earlier. He's been in heaven since the beginning of creation and before creation, with only the exception of a few decades on earth. He speaks with complete confidence of heaven. Jesus is preparing to welcome the disciples deeper into the best family, that they had spent three years with. They have an idea, maybe even more than we do, just seeing his mannerisms and, and watching how he cared for them. But we can still read his words. In heaven, there's no fighting. There's no disagreements. Only unconditional love for one another, genuine care at all times. And maybe this resonates with you if you didn't grow up in a home like this. Maybe you don't have it now. But be assured that one day is coming when you can have that peace, that peaceful home forever. And there's no danger of it being taken from you. If it were not so, I would have told you, Jesus says. Now for the second time, he's saying, in other words, just trust me. For all eternity, I've already lived where you're going. Jesus seems to recognize that they have no idea what's coming, but he can visualize what heaven looks like as he speaks to them. To me, it's kind of like if you talk to a friend, and you find out you're going to my hometown. Okay, well, let me give you all the highlights automatically you can visualize the intersections, the corner store, that picture in your mind that maybe you have a skin knee from because that's how you remember it. It's the place where you were playing outside until the streetlight came on and you knew you had to go home. I'm old enough to know what the streetlight meant. We don't have streetlights anymore, which we did. But, they can, but you can speak with confidence about your home. You know that place. Jesus knows heaven. He knows that place. It's his home. And Jesus is trying to convince them here it's really true. If it wasn't, here's another way to say this. If it wasn't, why would I have bothered to tell you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? I already can see it. I already know what it looks like. Next, I go and prepare a place for you. The Greek word you is pronounced human, which means you specifically, you personally, as in to be the beneficiary of an eternal home designed and waiting for you. No trips to Home Depot when you get there. It's not a fixer-upper. It's definitely new construction with an eternal warranty. Oh, and no mortgage. <laughs> Pay your mortgages in the meantime. 
Jesus is trying to get them to understand that he's not failing them by leaving. In our life, if you have a, a family member who comes and goes, they, they, they live some states away and they come, and you know that when they come, they have to leave. Jesus is relying on the trust that he's built with them so that they believe him. I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving you in a lurch. I'm not leaving you forever. So to yourselves and think, what would you like restored in your life in heaven? What has God enabled you to do or maybe have an enjoyable skill in? Hiking, surfing, riding, running? Maybe age has crept in or there's a physical issue prohibiting you from doing what you once did. Things start to become a little bit slower. Maybe there was an injury. With our upcoming healed bodies, though, and healed minds, that'll all change and made whole in heaven. Do you like singing and praying? We'll do those for sure, so make sure you get some good practice down here. Sing in the beginning of services, but that doesn't mean that that has to be your experience with singing to the Lord. There's prayer in the beginning. There's prayer in different parts of the, the week that Pastor Tony will offer. That does not mean that that's your only opportunity to pray. These verses here are clearly intended to bring encouragement, fresh off of the troubling scenes that we intentionally backed up through to see where these guys were, were mentally sitting a few minutes ago. Heaven is the place where all tears will be wiped away and all things are made new. Randy Alcorn, a writer known for his writings about heaven, said this, for the Christian, death is not the end of the adventure, but a doorway from a world where dreams and adventures shrink to a world where dreams and adventures expand forever. John 13, 33 says, dear children, I'll be with you a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you'll search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. And I'll say, at least not yet. Said another way, heaven is the eternal home for those who trust Jesus Christ as Savior, the ones with the ticket, the ones with the reservation. In an earthly thinking kind of a way to understand, heaven is believed to be a realm above the earth and outer space. You know, you may say, look up, or heaven's up there, or, you know, people say different things about heaven. But we have a little bit of evidence in 2 Corinthians 12. When Paul says, I, which really more literally means, I know a guy in Christ, who was caught up to the third heaven. The first heaven is understood as our atmosphere, the clouds, sky, where planes, helicopters fly. Second level is outer space with stars, planets, Starlink satellites. See those now flying around the sky. Rocket ships, asteroids, it's the second level. Then the third heaven is the dwelling place of God. An angel shows John a glimpse in heaven in Revelation 21 to describe streets of gold, gates of pearls, walls of jasper, illuminated exclusively by the presence of God and his glory. There's no more death, no more mourning, crying, pain, sorrow, sickness, or sin. There's no more sin in heaven. There's no more anxieties. There's no more anguish. All the fears we experience on earth are gone. Not some, all are gone. Reunions with friends and loved ones who knew Jesus as Savior are there. And I know there's so much more to say about heaven, but we have to move on. Verse 3, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. We've already talked about this, but Jesus can't come again unless or until he, what, leaves. He's got to go. He's got to leave these guys. Obviously, this requires the disciples to trust with a willingness to believe that Jesus was telling them the truth. Writer Philip Yancey said, saints become saints by somehow hanging on to the stubborn conviction that things are not as they appear and that the unseen world is as solid and trustworthy as the visible world around us. 
God deserves trust even when it looks like the world is caving in. There's a reference here to the rapture too, the time when Jesus comes back for all of his believers on earth. Some will die first, and that's hard. But in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Meets us halfway almost between the heavens. Something I think that we can see, we can see, we'll be able to see him coming. Then we'll be with the Lord forever. Jesus coming in the clouds to snatch us is heaven's Up to heaven is God's gracious, loving escape from the pure evil that will be unleashed on those who are left behind. That's the downside of of not following the Lord. Major downside. We aren't guaranteed our next breath nor any future time frame on this planet before he could do this. So it's important that we get to know him now. Moving to verse 4. And where I go, you know. In the way, you know. Thomas did not know where Jesus was going. But the word know is in the perfect tense, meaning to understand how to. Jesus is saying, you, you guys know how. You know how this thing is going to play out. Maybe you just don't realize it yet. It's like how you may understand or innately know how to accomplish a certain task or naturally work through a certain process. Here, you knowing a skill or thing is seen as favorable and came from learning during training or experience. I don't do electrical work. Don't ask. I don't. I don't do it. But people I would hire, I hope, (laughs) have the ability to diagnose and fix things. Why? Because they know their craft. They've studied it by experience or knowledge. They know their craft completely. So the things we know, do we always do what we know is right or apply what we know is appropriate in circumstances and situations? I'm not talking about electrical work. I'm talking about how we relate to others, how we respond to others, or how we react in some cases. In John 13, 17, John 13, 17 says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So you may conceptually know how to do electrical work, do your own taxes, fix your own car. I'll do any of those things. Maybe I could, maybe I should. But there comes a time when you consider whether you're going to test that knowledge. You want to test fixing your car? See what happens if you really don't have the knowledge you think you do? You know, you saw it on YouTube. You know a guy that says you can do it. Maybe. But if you try, maybe let's just say you're not probably being a blessing in the situation. Just accumulating knowledge itself impresses some, but the greater challenge and ability to bless others proactively is putting into practice what we know. Heaven is the thing we know. It's a fact we must accept. The alternative is to a very real, very literal hell. Said plainly, we may know conceptually about heaven, We may have read about heaven. We may have read some of the books about heaven. We can conceptualize these ideas. But are we using that knowledge to make choices in our lives that lead us to living in a godly way? Knowledge is power, as they say. So how are we using it? Verse 5, let's deal with Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? So Thomas basically throws a flag on the play, and he is completely honest by freely admitting his lack of understanding to Jesus. Thomas, poor guy, already known for doubting, got a bad rap already, he's quite quite literal in his approach. He didn't beat around the bush. He's like, Lord, I, I, I don't know what's going on here. He genuinely says, this is the New Living Translation, this is not my paraphrase, we have no idea where, we are, where you were going, so how can we know the way? And quickly jumping ahead, we'll cover some of this in a minute, but 
This is what happens right after this exchange with Thomas. Jesus says in verse six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you would really know me, you would know who my father is. And here it is. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Said another way, from now on, you do know him, the father, and have seen him because I'm him. I am the resemble, I am God. Did you catch that? Jesus effectively tells him, I'm the way to follow because I am God myself. He goes on to say in verse 9, I've been with you all this time, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, which secured the point. It seems, it seems Thomas was expecting maybe a more literal direction. He didn't expect the way to be identified with Jesus himself. That's where it almost seems like, well, where are we going? Let's go. Let's pack up camp and move on. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. This is heaven where we're going. Jesus said to him, responding in verse 6, so Jesus said to him, responding to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We've already talked a little bit about truth, how the world views truth and the constant changing of true north. We've talked about the way, and the way is through Jesus himself to the Father. But Zoe is the Greek word for life, which means a spiritual life. Jesus is saying, to the Father is where I'm going, and I am how you're going to get there. Then that's when you'll truly live in heaven. Said another way, there's a way through this and you'll follow me to your ultimate destination if you trust me. We have to trust him. The world thinks what about these things? The way to heaven is to give enough money, doing enough good deeds, having a priest absolve our sins. Jesus already died for our sins and, and, and yes, we are sinful and we need a savior. Knowing this, he's still opened heaven to all who believe. And that's the amazing part. We were born sinful. We didn't just turn sinful one day. We were born sinful. Right out of the gate. Ryan talked about that recently. None of us deserve this at all. The way, though, as personalized in Jesus, was an experience of suffering, which he had not yet done in these verses. But more importantly, the result of triumph through that humiliation that he endured on the cross. Without his sacrifice and our belief in it, Verse 6 says, no one comes to the Father. No one. No matter how good we are, none of us can save ourselves. But yet most of us want to walk in the way of life. Who doesn't want a better life? Who doesn't want to live in a way that, that brings absolute satisfaction and fulfillment? I don't think there's anyone that doesn't. So Hebrews 10 says, therefore, we have confidence to enter the most holy place, which from Old Testament days we can't do on our own by the blood of Jesus himself. By his death, by Jesus' death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place where ordinarily a priest would have had to have gone for us, but no longer with Jesus. And since we have a, high, a great high priest, who is Jesus himself, who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. There's no barrier anymore like there used to be. There's no sacrifice that we have to bring anymore except a, a life of sacrifice ourselves. The disciples already knew this, but in John 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Sorry, a couple chapters before. Then just like the place where we started, maybe in your life you've experienced some bad or unsettling, troubling things, as the verse says. We all respond differently based on times of stress and problems. If we're honest too, most of us want our own way. We know this in kids. They're just louder about it. 
Some adults are, I guess, too. We want our own way out of the problems that we find ourselves in. We want to think what is right or should be. Should is the S word in our house. We don't say should. Should turns badly sometimes. I, I, this should happen this way. This, this process should work this way. Well, it doesn't. You have to deal with some of those realities. You know, even though we want what's right, we still have to deal with them. The culture makes us think that we have a choice from column A of the world, but yet can still have our sins forgiven. And you hear that when people, uh, I've, I, like I've said, I've, I think I've done enough good things. I think I can still go to heaven. I've done enough of this thing that's good in the culture or viewed as positive in the culture. I should be fine. No, that's not how that works. The original language of way here is singular. There's only one singular way to the Father. So go ahead and try to reconcile any of the insanity that we talked about in the world a little bit earlier. None of that is the way to life. It doesn't work. Ephesians 2, 8 reminds, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for any of this. It's a gift from God. I'll start the conclusion here by reading a song that you know. We sing it here. It's called The Way or New Horizon by Pat Barrett. Here's the bridge. It's a new horizon and I'm set on you. And you meet me here today with mercies that are new. All my fears and doubts, they can all come too. Because they can't stay long when I'm here with you. As a Christian, our ship of faith doesn't have to be tossed with every strange wind that comes and blows. Not even by any manufactured scare tactic that you hear on the news. Social media, friends and neighbors. It's a new horizon and I'm set on you means there's a new trajectory or a new course, a new way maybe, as the verse suggests, that we take when we follow Jesus. It's like a fixed GPS point that anchors our faith. It's not constantly changing. It's always fixed. You can rely on it. You can put pressure on it. When we give up our old ways, our old thoughts, and become new creations, only then can we have that eternal Zoe life, that spiritual life forever. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it this way. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, and the new life has begun. This is the changed person who knows the way because uh, the way to God because they believe that the truth of his son is paramount. They won't walk in darkness. They will live forever with an everlasting life. So today, are you journeying aimlessly, searching for meaning? You're not sure what it means to live. You're not sure how to handle certain things that you're working through? Is your ship, does your ship have a rudder that's junked up with so much trouble you can't even hold a steady line? Or maybe like Thomas, you're still doubting and you need to have this spelled out one more time. It's okay. At the start, I told you a lot of things wrong with the world. Pressures with our youth, our society. Through a ministry I serve with locally, I received an update this week that I think will give you a little bit of an optimistic view of our local area. Through a series of events at our public schools, we'll see who says something about this, in our local counties, Atlantic and Cape May County, nearly 70 students have prayed to receive Christ this year, 2023, since January. As Christ their Savior this year, 90, though, from the beginning of the school year, started August 1st. They're baby Christians, true. So we need to pray that they're connected with Bible teaching churches and caring pastors so wolves don't get them tear them away from that newfound fixed GPS point that Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life. 
So when all hope seems lost, honestly, when I was studying, I actually went digging for information. I said, I, I made a call. I said, oh, you have to give me some good news. And he said, I've got plenty of good news for you. There's plenty, there's plenty that the Lord is doing that you don't have to worry about what's going on in the world. And then I followed up again, and he told me more good news. There were 33 more students in Gloucester County for an event that was postponed for three years during COVID. 33 students gave their lives to the Lord right, right then and there with a basic invitation. Same thing in Gloucester County. So South Jersey's coming. <laughs> South Jersey's covered. And who knows what the Lord's plans are going forward. So now what about you? If you haven't decided to stop going your own way and trust that Jesus is the way and make him your way, or you haven't accepted that he's the truth that you've been looking for, the Bible says today is the acceptable time of salvation. A popular paraphrase puts it this way about how Jesus said, I heard your call in the nick of time. The day you needed me, I was there to help. If you don't know for certain that you'll go to heaven when you die or when the rapture comes and those saints that have believed are called up, you can pray the verse six. You can pray the words that we've already seen. Jesus, you are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. You pray that in repentance, which means to not just be sorry for the sins that you've done, but to turn from, to turn toward Jesus and away from the life that you've been living. Pray that in your hearts right now. We don't, we don't mind, just like these students. You know, this, this, this is how we obtain life. This, this, these words are how we will live forever. Or we'll pray in a minute too, and you can make that decision if you're willing. I mean, for me personally, it, it took me probably two to three years of hearing and hearing and not knowing what to say and how to say it and what do I do and until someone one day called me and said, have you believed? I said, I know how to believe. I know what to believe, but I don't know how to make it real. And that's when it happened for me. It wasn't, wasn't a, an event. It wasn't anything specific. It was just the realization that I need my name on a reservation ticket. I need personally to make a decision that will alter my life forever. If you've done that and you've admitted you're a sinner before him and trusted him, you've become a Christian too. You can now become a disciple, just like these 12 that we started with. So I'll end now by saying, don't go on believing that there's more than one way to heaven. As you've heard from this pulpit and others, let's just be glad there is a way that we can be redeemed from our sinfulness just so thankful that we can participate in it.